This evening we're considering certain events after the flood and we're looking at Genesis chapter 8 verse 20 through to chapter 9 verse 17. God, having seen that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, brought a flood of waters upon the earth. With regards to that flood, the waters or the rain, the rain was upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights and it was only after 150 days that the, 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 the water was abated. It began to, to go. The only human survivors of the flood were those whom God had shut into the ark. They were Noah who made the ark, his wife, his three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth and their wives, just eight people in all from the world's population. It wasn't a local flood, it was a global flood. Just eight people survived that flood. Has it ever occurred to you that you, me, each one of us in here and indeed everyone in the world is a descendant of Noah? We all kind of, we recognise that we're descendants of Adam but we're descendants of Noah. With regards to the animals, two of every kind of unclean bird, cattle and creeping things of the earth were kept alive in the ark. As for the clean beasts, they were taken by sevens. There's a bit of discussion about what by sevens mean. I tend to think it's by seven pairs. Maybe not, but seven, whether it was seven of them or seven pairs um, whereas there were the the unclean animals were taken in pairs, just one pair of each, and the clean by sevens, possibly, probably seven pairs. This evening we shall consider some of the things that happened immediately after the waters had abated off the earth, and Noah, his family's family, and all those animals that were shut into the ark. They came forth out of the ark. Well, consider what happened next. First of all, we see that Noah offered a burnt offering on an altar that he made. Don't run away with the idea. Uh, what I've just said there, that title, it should suggest to you that Noah was a, a sinner. The very fact that he made a, an altar. But we could run away with the idea that unlike everyone else, Noah and those eight people who were shut into the ark, they were somehow better than everyone else. And we may even think that they were without sin. But just look at chapter 9, verse 20 and 21. And Noah builded, sorry, um, 9.20? No, chapter 8. Noah builded an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savour and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. Who was, who's man there? 
the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Who was God talking about? Who was in the world then? Noah and the other seven people. No one else. And yet the Lord's saying there that the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. So that's something to bear in mind, isn't it? wonder who the Lord was talking about. Presumably Noah and his family and us here today and everyone in this world. Noah had already shown himself to be a very capable shipbuilder having made the ark. And I don't suppose it would have been beyond his capability to build himself and his wife a nice new home to live in. And I dare say that he probably did uh, make himself a home for himself and his wife. But as can be seen in these verses, the first thing that he put his hand to was the building of an altar on which to burn, uh, to offer burnt offerings to God. No doubt with thanksgiving in his heart and in acknowledgement of God's grace and mercy towards him and his family. These verses, verse 20 and 21, show that the best of men are not without sin. Even though Noah is said to be, have been perfect or upright, he too was a sinner, just like the rest of us. For all have sinned and all come short of the glory of God. Even if we didn't find it in these verses that Noah was a sinful man, we know that. We ought to know that anyway from the New Testament at the very least that all have sinned, all come short of the glory of God. And that's something that Paul said in the New Testament but that's been applicable ever since sin came into the world by one man, Adam, and with sin came death. The very fact that Noah offered burnt offerings bears testimony to him seeking mercy from God, whom he worshipped, no doubt as a repentant sinner. As Albert Barnes, a Bible commentator, said, we have also here the first mention of the burnt offering, the whole victim except the skin being burned on the altar. Sacrifice is an act in which the transgressor or the lawbreaker, slays an animal and offers it in whole, or in part, as representative of the whole, to God. In this act he acknowledges his guilt, the claim of the offended law upon his life, and the mercy of the Lord in accepting a substitute to satisfy this claim for the returning penitent. How different... Noah's priorities were to the Jews in the prophet Haggai's time. What did they do when they returned from Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity? They built for themselves houses while the house of the Lord lay in ruins. That was their priority, to build themselves a nice home. See something altogether different with Noah here. First thing he did was build himself an altar, uh, uh, built an altar for sacrifices. If you're someone who has been forgiven all your iniquities and your life has been redeemed from destruction by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, I wonder what your priorities are in this world. 
What Noah did when he offered burnt offerings to the Lord before anything else was an act of worship. However, animal sacrifices, which were a reminder of sin, have ceased ever since the Lamb of God laid down his life at the cross. No more animal sacrifices. Even so, you who are trusting in Christ as your Saviour and your Lord are to present your body as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It is your act of spiritual worship, presenting yourself, your body, daily as a living sacrifice to God. How can anyone do that? Well, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and maybe that's something that we should be praying a lot more that we might do, present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, wholly acceptable to God, with the Holy Spirit working in us, willing us to do according to God's good pleasure. Is it is that your priority and your prayer as someone whose confidence is entirely in the Lord Jesus Christ, who, having lived a sinlessly perfect life, on your behalf, sacrificially laid down his life when he was wounded for your transgressions at the cross. Also, if you haven't already done so, make it your top priority to repent and to receive Jesus as your saviour from sin. That would have to be your number one priority if you have not yet received Jesus as your saviour from sin. In fact, it's, to say that it's your top priority, it's an understatement. Everything else is an irrelevance. If there's anyone in here who hasn't done that, you need to be listening. And uh, without any delay, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in him for the forgiveness of your sins. Secondly, God is in control. In verse 21, the Lord says that there will not be another universal judgment upon the earth. He doesn't use those words, but uh, that's essentially what is being said there, that there will not be another judgment upon the earth. And then in verse 22, God gives an assurance that whilst the earth remains, the various seasons and harvest times will not cease. That is until Jesus comes again in judgment. We won't have the seasons and the harvest times uh, forevermore. Jesus is coming again in judgment. And that's very clear. We learn this elsewhere in the Bible. Clear teaching that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. And when he does, everyone who has ever lived will appear before his judgment seat. Some will go away into life eternal whilst everyone else, and I would have to say the vast majority, will go away to everlasting punishment. It all comes down to whether you have trusted in Jesus as your saviour from sin. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him, and believing in him means believing that he was lifted up to die as a sacrifice for your sin. Whosoever believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
Until that day comes, that day of judgment, the various seasons and the harvest times will continue and then finally, not in man's time, but in God's perfect time, the earth and also the works that are therein shall be burned up in God's time. Therefore, while seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night continue, they are a continual reminder to us of God's long-suffering towards us. That God is patient. That a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day, and God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Every, every new day, new season, it's a reminder to us of God's long-suffering towards his uh, sin, towards sinful mankind. However, God will not always strive with rebellious man. There will be a final judgment. Therefore, repent, be reconciled to God through faith in his dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, God permitted the eating of meat. Look at chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat, food for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things, but flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. Originally there was no death, man was herbivorous, and so too was every beast of the earth. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? The lions, the tigers, and all these uh, ferocious animals, uh, all the creatures of the earth were plant eaters to start off with. You can see that in the early chapters of Genesis. Every bird of the air, everything that creeps upon the earth was originally herbivorous. There were no slaughterhouses, no meat processing plants, neither were there predatory animals. That's very clear. Genesis chapter 1 verse 29 and 30 where it is written, And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for food and to every beast of the earth and to every fowl of the air and to everything that creepeth upon the earth wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat or food, and it was so. So you've got it there in Genesis chapter 1. However, ever since sin entered the world, animals have been sacrificed, even though they were not originally eaten. As was seen in chapter 8 and verse 20, clean animals were offered by Noah as burnt offerings. Obviously, those animals were killed. That would explain why it was that when animals were taken into the ark, that they were categorised as either clean or unclean, and many more pairs of clean animals were kept safe in the ark than unclean pairs, presumably because they were sacrificed at the altar. Then after the flood, God permitted the eating of meat, when in chapter 9 and verse 3 he said, 
every moving thing that liveth shall be meat or food for you. Every moving thing that liveth. By saying every moving thing, there was no prohibition on eating unclean animals. Everything means everything. The unclean and the, when it came to dietary laws, that, the, that came years later, um, when the dietary laws were given to Israel and they were only permitted to eat clean animals, but we don't see that distinction here in Genesis chapter 9. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, the Lord said. However, as can be seen in verse 4 of chapter 9, when God first permitted the eating of meat, although there does not appear to have been any prohibition on eating unclean animals, there was a prohibition on eating flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof. It's safe to say that an animal with no blood in its veins is a dead animal. You don't have to be a scientist to work that one out. You don't have to be a genius to work that one out. An animal that's been drained of its blood is going to be a dead animal. Therefore, that restriction that we see uh, in verse 4, but flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. That restriction was a mercy of God towards his creatures because it prevented the extremely cruel and painful practice of wicked men eating animals that were still alive. And you think about it, what is there that wicked man will not do? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. If your own wicked mind and heart, whatever you can come up with, the most terrible things that man can do, you can be sure it's being done in this world. Without exception. But God placed a prohibition here. Um, to not eating um, flesh with the blood in it. To ensure that animals were truly dead. <coughs> the unity of life and blood is further mentioned in Leviticus chapter 17 verses 10 and 11 where it is written... And whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel or of the strangers that sojourn among you that eateth any manner of blood, I will even set my face against that soul that eateth blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. So there's that prohibition on eating flesh with blood in it, and it's reasonable to say that 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 is, that, that is a, an act of mercy on, on God's creatures. But clearly, there's a message being conveyed here, that, that blood can be seen as the fountain of life. There's that connection between blood and life, and it is the fountain of life. And in the fullness of time, the Lord Jesus Christ poured out his lifeblood when he died in the place of sinners as the sacrificial lamb of God. That same precious blood cleanses the redeemed from all their sins. As the hymn writer said, and as we sang before, there is a 
fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Fourthly, God authorised capital punishment. There are estimated to be about 73 million abortions globally every year. I say estimated, who knows? 73 million, 74, 75, anybody's guess. And in that number there, are they including the, uh, the abortions that, are, that, that take place with the morning after pill? I doubt it. But anyway, a lot of abortions every year worldwide. And even though a recent Supreme Court ruling has resulted in the banning of abortion by certain American states, the European Union has gone the other way and it has backed a UN resolution to make abortion a human right. Generally speaking, the world situation is that whilst the mutilation, decapitation, disembowelment and dismemberment of unborn babies is regarded as women's health care, family planning, a woman's right, and so on. The judicial killing of convicted murderers is largely frowned upon. It's rejected. It's forbidden in a world in which the devil is prince. I find that amazing. Uh, Not in a good way either that abortion is women's health care. But the, the world, the countries, one after the other, they're following suit in banning capital punishment. There is only one country in Europe now that still has capital punishment, Belarus. That's it, in the whole of Europe. doesn't make sense to me. This speaks volumes of a world that is in rebellion against Almighty God, who in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6 has clearly said, Whosoever sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. God doesn't simply permit capital punishment for murderers. He commands it. But what do world leaders do? They ban it. Typical example of the the rulers of the world taking counsel against the Lord and against his Christ. And, And enacting laws that contradict and violate God's holy laws. This is the world we live in. It's upside down, isn't it? Where uh, evil is seen as good and, and good is seen as evil. It's a really messed up world. It's a, and, and that, it's a very, very sinful world. Again, God is long-suffering. And again, as long as there is seed time and harvest and all these seasons, we can think God is extremely long-suffering with this world. Uh, the thoughts, the, the imagination of the thoughts of men's heart are only towards evil continually, same now as it ever was, but still, today is a day of grace, a day to repent and to turn from your wicked ways to receive Jesus as your saviour from sin.
But it is a command. It's not a pretty please or anything else. What we read there in verse 6. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. The original dignity that was assigned to man, namely that he was made in the image of God, is given in verse 6 as the reason for this divine command. Therefore, murder is not only a serious crime against man, but it is also, as one of the commentators has explained, an injury to God and a contempt of that image of God which all men are obliged to reverence and maintain and especially magistrates who are under a particular obligation to punish those who deface and destroy it. And they're to punish those people with death, judicial death, judicial killing. But of course we live in a world which is going in another direction completely. Whereas the prince of this world, he is happy for people to violate God's royal law, love your neighbour as yourself, uh, unborn babies. The nearest neighbour that a, a pregnant mother will ever have is her unborn baby. And yet it's we know that the devil, he loves killing babies. He loves killing children. It's the Old Testament all over again. Offering children in sacrifice to Molech. And this is what we do at the abortion clinics. Offering our children to Molech. Ultimately to the devil. And yet we frown upon, not we personally, but the world frowns upon the judicial killing of convicted murderers. It really doesn't make sense to me. And it violates chapter 9 and verse 6 of the Word of God. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6. Fifthly, the token of God's covenant between himself and the earth. Genesis chapter 9 verse 9 through to 17 contain details of a covenant that God made with Noah, with us, the descendants of Noah, and with all God's creatures, the, the, the covenant wasn't just with Noah, that's what I'm getting at, it was all of God's creatures. That's clear in verses 8 through to 10, where the Lord said, every living creature, and in verse 13, where he said, I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. So it's very far-reaching. The details follow on from what had just been said by God to Noah in verse 7. Be ye fruitful and multiply. Those same words were said in chapter 1, verse 28. Sounds familiar to you. Look at, um, first of all, look at verse 7 there. And you be ye fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. And God spake unto Noah to his sons with him, saying, Behold, I establish a covenant. And, and But first of all there, it's be ye fruitful and multiply. God had said that. 
when he first made man. Be fruitful and multiply. But then what happened? As people multiplied, so did the sin in the world multiply. Until such time, the whole earth was filled with violence. And as, as we've already seen, God destroyed the, the population of the world, all but eight people, with a flood. But again, the Lord is saying there, be fruitful and multiply. However, after the flood, there would be no more floods to de- destroy all flesh, despite the continuance of evil. And as a sign of God's covenant with his creatures, he said in verse 13, I do set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. Although up to the sixth day of creation, God watered the plants with a mist. I was looking at uh, answers in Genesis the other day, and answers in Genesis points out that there's no reason to imagine or to insist, as some Christians tend to do, that there was no rain and therefore no rainbow until after the flood. That seems to be the teaching, doesn't it, that there was no rain at all until the flood, until the rain come for 40 days and 40 nights. But the Bible doesn't actually teach that. There was certainly no rain up until the sixth day when man was made. We see that in Genesis chapter 2. But it doesn't, there's no information given beyond that. And so we tend to read into the scriptures uh, a little bit too much at times. Maybe we're right in doing that, maybe we're wrong. A lot of it's guesswork. Whether there was rain and rainbows before the flood or not, it doesn't really matter. The The rainbow has a special significance whether there were rainbows before the flood or just afterwards, but with this covenant, the rainbow took on a special significance as a sign of God's pledge not to destroy all flesh again with a flood. However, as has already been considered, the day will come when God will judge all who have ever lived and he will do so by his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The heavens and the earth which are now are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and punishment of ungodly men. So even that rainbow, it's not going to be forever. When we look at the rainbow, it's a a sign of God's covenant with all his creatures, but it's not there forevermore. As we finish, rainbows are bent towards heaven where there is a bow around the throne of God. As the prophet Ezekiel said in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 26 to 28, concerning his heavenly vision, and above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne, as the appearance of a sapphire stone, and upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man above upon it. And I saw as the colour of amber, as the appearance of fire round about within it, from the appearance of his loins even upwards, and from the appearance 
of his loins even downward. And I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and it had brightness round about, as the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face, and I heard a voice of one that spake. So you've got the bow that um, is bent towards heaven, pointing to where a man is seated on a throne there. And there's a throne which is surrounded by a bow. Therefore, rainbows direct our thoughts towards the Lord Jesus Christ, who is seated on the right hand of the throne of God, until such time that rainbows cease to be. And that will be when Jesus comes again to bring this present world to an end. His name is the only name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Whosoever shall call on his name shall be saved. Amen.